So as George mentioned, we can, we can spend a lot of time and energy at work. Spend a lot of time and energy working. And does it matter? Does work matter? Why? If one steps outside these walls, uh, if one doesn't work in a serving field, as a nurse, a doctor, an emergency worker, teacher, caregiver, if one doesn't work at the church or a nonprofit, if, if one doesn't seem like they're really making a huge difference in the world, uh, not doing any sort of cutting-edge, groundbreaking work, does work matter? Could work still matter? Speaking from the Christian perspective and focused specifically on business, though I think it applies generally, Jeff Van Duzer, a former business school dean, says, for far too long, many Christians in business have accepted without challenge the notion that their work has only instrumental value. It may give them a platform to share their faith, It may allow them to earn an income and possibly make a little extra to give to the church. But if pressed, many Christians in business would have difficulty saying why God might be interested in the actual work that they are doing. As I reflect on my own experiences and the experience of others, four common stages come to mind regarding people's sense, um, posture towards the purpose of work. I think disengaged, already confident that work is pointless and without meaning. I think another group can be searching, unsure of what the purpose of work is, but looking for meaning and purpose. I think another category could be hopeful, thinking that their work is meaningful or could be meaningful, uh, but might, might not be able to speak articulate a specific reason for the hope, reason for the meaning, can, but, but may have some sense that the work itself, something about the work matters. And then the fourth group, uh, as was indicated by that quote, is instrumental, right? Somebody may see a clear purpose for work, but the purpose implies that, that the work itself is actually just instrumental, unimportant, in and of itself, just a means to an end. So as we search uh, for meaning, for purpose, as we interpret meaning and purpose in work, it's important to understand God's work and God's posture towards work. So we'll briefly read a few sections of Genesis 1. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was form and without void, uh, without form and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. So two quick observations from these first five verses. 
In creating, God gives order and form to the orderless and the formless. And God notices the goodness of his work, the goodness of his good work. Now let's jump forward to verse 24. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds. Livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So two more observations. God makes plants and creatures with diversity, with life. Life and diversity that will multiply and grow as these creatures multiply and grow and fill the earth. And again, God notices the goodness of the created order, the goodness of the work of his hands. God notices good work. Then we continue in verse 26, where we're reminded that there's something special about humans within the whole of God's created order. Verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps over the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, uh, birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves over the earth. And then in chapter 215, jumping forward, it says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So Adam and Eve were made in the likeness of God. The likeness of a creative and caring and working God. We see God's work to create a flourishing environment and humans were called to work likewise. We work because God works and work as an expression of our identity. We saw and we continue to see the goodness of God's excellent work. God gets the big picture, God gets the details right. We see a model for really, really excellent work. Two, and we see again that God sees the goodness of his work. Creation was good as an outcome and, and the work of creation itself was good. And God notices it. We see a model for not only doing good work, but noticing and appreciating good work and God noticing and appreciating good work. Adam and Eve were given a job. They were tasked with supporting the flourishing for the things that were in their care via the responsibilities that they'd been entrusted with. They were placed in the garden and given the responsibility to care for it. Adam and Eve 
may have likely been digging in the garden, dealing with the animals. Um, Some may not be drawn to the idea of doing manual labor in a field or working with animals as a farmhand. Some today might look down on that sort of work, but the work that they did was dignified. Their work meant something. Whether they were doing one of their responsibilities, it seems kind of glamorous, like naming the animals, um, which is in a verse we didn't read, but, or, or working with the dirt. They were living out their identity as image bearers of a creative, working, caring God. And they were carrying out the creative mandate that God gave them to care for and cultivate and fill the place that they were in in a way that contributed to the flourishing and life of all the things that were there. Tim Keller has a quote. If we are to be image bearers with regard to creation, then we, then we will carry on his pattern of work. We are to be gardeners who take an active stance toward their charge. They do not leave the land as it is. They rearrange it in order to make it most fruitful to draw the potentialities for growth and development out of the soil. They dig up the ground and rearrange it with a goal in mind to rearrange the raw material of the garden so that it produces food, flowers, and beauty. And that is the pattern for all work. It is creative and assertive. It is rearranging the raw material of God's creation in such a way that helps the world in general and people in particular flourish and thrive. Genesis gives us a significant hope for the dignity of work, the value of work, the importance of work. Work does have purpose. And it flows out of the core of who we are, people made in the image of God whether we are in a prominent position, doing culture making or resource arrangement in some grand scale, or whether we are working the ground, we are in a position to contribute either to the brokenness or the flourishing of the garden in which we've been placed. And we can work with confidence that our work has an inherent dignity and inherent value where God can be using us to care for the people around us, for the organizations that we're in and the places that we're in. So now that we've had a chance to dig into the purpose of work, it's worth noting that although this truth and this vision does not change, sometimes our tangible experience, tangible observations, physical experience, felt experiences and observations, make this feel like a lofty, distant reality. Sometimes the hope and the life of the garden seem like a distant reality. Experientially, while we may see flourishing, much of what we see and experience may seem far from any sort of flourishing. Likewise, we may feel helpless to really make a difference while acknowledging the inherent goodness and dignity of work, we may feel downtrodden, 
tired, ill-equipped, underutilized. We see the brokenness of this world. We see the presence of selfishness all over this world. We see the consequences of the interaction of selfish people, broken choices, broken institutions. And we see this affecting our work. Last week, I watched uh, Deepwater Horizon, a film account of the BP oil spill. It is tough to watch. You see this toxic corporate culture at BP that's strictly oriented towards speedy profits. Over the course of the movie, you see pride and shortcuts and carelessness and a lack of concern for flourishing. And I know how the movie will turn out in terms of casualties and environmental disaster, but I couldn't help but hope against what I see happening before my eyes and what I know is going to happen. In this case, knowing the end didn't really seem to help. It almost made it worse. There's a lot of brokenness in this world and there can be a lot of brokenness in our work. This brokenness can take different forms, but one way or another, we cannot seem to escape it. And the grand arc of scripture affirms this tension between how things are and how things feel. And the tension between the goodness of creation, of a good home, a good work, with good relationships and good and trustworthy authorities and just a holistic environment of flourishing and our sometimes contrasting experiences, real and felt experiences amidst broken circumstances and in a broken world. The prophet Jeremiah writes a letter to Israel while they're in exile in captivity in Babylon. In Jeremiah 29, it said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. And it picks up in verse 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed in Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. It's such a striking situation. This sharp intersection between struggle and death and life and beauty. These people, Israel, 
have been violently taken out of their homeland at the hands of a brutal king. For anybody who'd hope that exile wouldn't last too long, this was their, we're going to be here for a while, awakening. They'll be in this place for generations. This is a really, really tough situation to be in. Being captive to this hostile country. But for all the struggle, which we can't dismiss or ignore because it's important, James Davidson Hunter points out the similarity with the Genesis moment. They were sent into exile placed into this place, Babylon. Like Adam and Eve were placed into the garden. They were called to be fruitful and multiply again, starting families and having children in this place. They were called to live and work in this place, in Babylon, and they were called to seek its welfare. Although Babylon may have been hostile to Israel and Israel had reason to feel hostility towards Babylon, Israel was called to seek the welfare and flourishing of Babylon. These people weren't just called to withdraw, creating insular communities and cultures. Although they were still called to maintain some of their distinctiveness as a community, they were called to do so for the common good. So we see a model for renewed cultural engagement in which work continues to play a critical role. It seems clear that this must be our model as the church of cultural engagement as well. And if over the Genesis-related texts and quotes you were thinking, Do I need to leave my job at BP? Toxic organization concerned only with the bottom line? Or substitute any reason why you could be called to leave your job, leave your work? In your specific case, the answer could be yes. But in Israel's case, we see something striking God has sent them into exile. God is still with them. God is still for them. God will bring them out of exile, but God has sent them into exile. So even if your job doesn't feel like it's designed to uh, promote flourishing, like that of an empowered master gardener in culture, even if your organization doesn't align with all your values, God may have sent you there. And surely God has sent us, a larger body of people that belong to him, a people who are surely not yet at home. God has sent us, Christians, believers, into exile and kept us in exile. That is the reality of the Christian life. And we should live and work accordingly.
Sometimes the place that you're in doesn't seem like you have much power or influence to bring about flourishing. And you can't help but wonder, why have I been sent there? Sometimes we work for particularly bad people or bad organizations. Sometimes the reality of exile, the reality of living in a world stained by sin, sometimes there's seemingly impossible choices. Lose-lose options, lesser of two evil options. And we can't get away from this tension. As good as it is to be God's people, and as good as it is to have the hope of the future flourishing, and as good as it is to already have some flourishing in exile, the reality of exile can be hard. Even when we're sharing in some of the flourishing and the welfare of this world, exile can be hard. And so, in texts like Isaiah 60 and Revelation 21 and the end of Jeremiah, we see that our destination is not back at the garden, but forward in a city. Judgment has come in Revelation 21. Judgment has come and there has been a dramatic battle. Evil has been destroyed. So let's pick up, let's read in Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And jumping forward to verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. The city has no need for sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring it into the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. We see the flourishing that God set forth in the garden, culminating 
and growing in this city. We see a renewal that all things have been made new. There's no more pain. There's no more toil. There's a beautiful city where the Lord God lives with his people. And the kings and kingdoms of the earth bring their glory unto this true king. There's a lot of destruction in the preceding chapters, but Revelations echoes Isaiah in saying that the kings of earth, that these kingdoms of earth will bring their glory to this city. And this gives us an example of Jesus' work to reconcile all things and completed work to reconcile all things as we see in Colossians. But, but it also, it gives us hope for the fruit of our own work. That the Holy Spirit could be using our work today to adorn the city of God for eternity. Even if our good and faithful work doesn't keep the oil rig afloat. And rescue everybody on board. Even if you can only save one, even if you can't save anybody, our work is not in vain. N.T. Wright has a great quote that reflects this. But what we can and must do in the present, if we are obedient to the gospel, if we are following Jesus, and if we are indwelt, energized, and directed by the Spirit, is to build for the kingdom. This brings us back to 1 Corinthians 15, 58, once more, what you do in the Lord is not in vain. You are not oiling the wheels of a machine that's about to roll off a cliff. You are not restoring a great painting that's shortly going to be thrown onto the fire. You are not planting roses in a garden that's about to be dug up for a building. You are, strange as it might seem, almost as hard to believe as the resurrection itself, accomplishing something that will become in due course part of God's new world. So in closing, how should we work? If you've spent time in our house churches where we study Colossians and Ephesians. Uh, I haven't covered those passages this morning, but they add something important. Um, But I think we can work with diligence, with quiet sincerity, with excellence, and we can work for the service of people, the witness to people, because of the good news reality, the gospel reality, because of the freedom that we have, because we are no longer under the law or looking for laws, because we have a secured inheritance.
coming out of Genesis, we can work with care and with earnestness for the ongoing ordering and cultivation of the earth because we are made in the image of God. In creation, we were given a mandate and because God loves his creation. We can work with humility and discernment and ought to work with humility and discernment in the reality of exile, relying on the spirit. We can work for the flourishing of our city, which can contribute to our own flourishing. And we can work this way because we, we've been sent into exile despite all of the difficulties and challenges that exile presents. And we can be confident that the spirit is working in exile and that the exile will not last forever. And we can work with hope and confidence and generosity for the blessing of this world and its people amidst brokenness and for the glory of Jesus and the city to come. Because someday there will be no more tears, there will be no more toil, there will be no more pain. All things are reconciled by Jesus and the glory and the wealth of the nations will be poured out on a city whose beauty and glory and order and flourishing will not end. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for the hope of work. Thank you that this huge segment of our lives is not uh, unaddressed by your word, but rather it is richly um, and powerfully addressed. So may you continue to stir in our hearts, stir in the hearts of this church, a hope and a vision both for cultural engagement and cultural renewal, community engagement, community renewal, and also for work, which plays such a critical role. Lord, help us to rightly see um, the goodness of who you've made us and, and how you've made us in your image, and may that give us strength to work. May we see the tension and the difficulty and the reality of exile, um, and yet the hope and the calling that we have in exile, and may that give us strength and endurance, and you give us strength and endurance in exile. Um, and may we look forward to this city, um, to this day where we are in your presence, without pain, without toil, um, but experiencing the flourishing that was, um, just began in the garden, Lord. So we look forward to that day um, and ask that you would give us discernment and wisdom and that your spirit would move in us and in our communities and that our work would bless our community um, and allow us to partner with people in, in our work for blessing this world with the confidence that it is not only blessing this world, but it is um, the work that we do in you 
is not in vain. Lord, so that, may that and may you give us significant strength and encouragement as we work. In Jesus' name, amen.